0: Welcome back to another season of Unraveling Science, the podcast where I chat to leading scientific researchers about the stories that have not only shaped the science, but also the scientist. This season, we have so much to cover from dermatology to astronomy, nutrition to immunology, and so much more. So if you're ready, let's begin Unraveling Science. This season I'm so delighted again to be sponsored by the wonderful Irish company BioSciences Limited. BioSciences are now part of the Thermo Fisher Scientific group and you can check out what they supply at thermofisher.com. I'm so grateful to them for continuing to sponsor this podcast. So, Professor Des Tobin, Professor of Dermatological Science at UCD School of Medicine and Director of the Charles Institute of Dermatology is my guest on the podcast today. So Des's research focuses on pigmentation and hair follicle biological processes in health, aging and diseases such as alopecia, vitiligo, melanoma and psoriasis and a previous chair of the British Society for Investigative Dermatology and a fellow of the Royal College of Pathologists and the Royal Society of Biology to name but a few. Des has authored over 150 publications and written three books and so with that in mind Des I'm so grateful that you have taken the time to chat with me today so thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
1: Thank you very much Megan for having me.
0: Um, So we were chatting there before we kind of came on air so you grew up in Navan, and I, I know I was saying that I'm from Westmead, so you've kind of got some Westmead uh, links there too. So tell me about growing up in Navan. What life was like?
1: Yeah, well, Navan uh, was known to to Dubliners as only an hour from Dublin, and uh, probably for for people in Westmead, and and obviously where I have um, relatives who are from the farming community, probably saw Navan as dirty, <laughs> and uh, as a kind of a dirty industrial kind of factory town. And I remember. We spent glorious summers, two weeks, every single summer on the farm in, uh, in Moat, County Westmeath. and on our way back, my father would drive us back into Navan, and we would start singing in the back of the car, Navan, Navin, Dirty, Dirty, Navin, because it seemed like we were going from the expansive countryside into this really kind of narrow streeted town with loads of cars. And and, and that contrast was always very striking for me, particularly in terms of uh, of being a biologist and understanding what can happen you know, on a farm in terms of tweaking your interest in biology versus what happens in a in a town with concrete everywhere although we were very lucky to have a big back uh, back garden where we were able to kind of have a, a little mini farm at times.
0: So do you think kind of your lo- like first love of science or first interest in science may be rooted in kind of agricultural backgrounds?
1: I think so and my mother um, you know grew up on a farm herself and and she is very much into the gardening uh, kind of side of living in the in the town and she would take us obviously to her her own kind of home uh, where, she, where she where she grew up and, and absolutely uh, as somebody who was always interested in science but more toward the biological end of science and uh, my father was probably more in the engineering and chemistry kind of side of science i think the um, you know the triggers of seasonality around uh, biological science you know the life uh, you know histories of farm animals as much as crops Although I was much more into mammal uh, biology than I was into plants, by the way, but it uh, was really a very important trigger, I think, for some of the early fascination and wonder.
0: And when you were in kind of secondary school, and you know, coming up to the leaving cert and, and college, was it always science the route you were going for, or were there other careers you were thinking yeah, about?
1: Um, I come from a kind of a teaching uh, background. My mother's school teacher, a couple of sisters of school teachers, and uncles on both sides who were into teaching. So I kind of felt that I would probably go down the The teaching of science root, you know, I had one very good uh, teacher in chemistry who kind of saved me from from even a lousier score in chemistry than I actually got. But so a charismatic teacher can help you through subjects and even scientific subjects that aren't your strong you know, your your strong points. But in the end, I kind of uh, decided that I would go from a leading start that had chemistry uh, and biology, but also had languages, uh, including Latin as it was, it was St. Pat's classical school in Avon uh, into a, a kind of a general um, BSc in science. Uh, but that really was all science. It was biology, chemistry and maths. It was one of those ordinary d- degrees, very useful for, in a sense for, for teaching, mm-hmm. but not really uh, focused around, uh, you know, research or any depth of focus that you would have to have for research. So I kind of then went from Maynooth where I did my BSc To a little kind of post BSc, um, post general BSc course in immunology. Uh, and then when I started to, to find a more defined, um, narrow kind of furrow to plough, I kind of went from being a very average student the whole way through to start getting some traction with some academic uh, ability. But I was very fortunate just to bump along at a very average level and get into university so I could even discover the benefits of having a deeper, you know, uh, to mine a seam uh, that was more controllable and, and, and deeper.
0: Yeah that's interesting because you know probably only when you got into something that you really really loved that that's when you kind of shun or when your academic ability came out whereas those kind of more general even like the Leaving Cert where you do so many different subjects maybe it's not obvious there because you're doing all these subjects you're not really interested in.
1: Yes and that's a hugely important point Megan and I think it really kind of uh, you know shows the diversity of individuals and individual learners so I had one particular sister who went Ended up being a pharmacist, but she could do equally well in every single subject, including the ones she didn't like at all. Whereas I could only do half decent in in those that that I really liked, and and even though uh, I did carry. Um, uh, biology as one of the focus areas of my degree it had it had uh, ecology it had plant systematics it had botany areas that I knew I didn't really have a strong interest in but looking back now having some breadth of that education has allowed me to to make links even within the narrower field that I ended up and I think had I not had some breadth, I think my ability to make those those connections and links probably would have been less strong
0: mm. And when you kind of eventually found, you know, immunology and, and the field that you were interested in, at what point did you decide, OK, a PhD is, is the life for me?
1: Um, I kind of got to a point, particularly in the course, in the short course in immunology after my, my BSc, um, when I actually got to into the lab and i and i had kind of lab coat on and gloves on the wet bench kind of environment and i kind of felt that there was a, a personal terra incognita kind of journey uh so that anything i was doing for that particular project would be a little bit different if not novel compared to what had gone on before and and there was uh you know no no longer was there a need to kind of regurgitate kind of pre uh, presented content from from, from from a course, but now I could you know kind of look for what was coming out from the bench and figure out what I needed to read up that would kind of show, shine more light on that particular thing but um, for my PhD my PhD it was I mean an absolute mess to start the PhD and very very briefly um, I was in England at, at the time doing a summer kind of work uh, you know in one of the one of the hospitals as a front hall porter up in uh, Maida Vale and I applied there therefore for PhDs in England I because of my immunology background I got uh, called uh, to an interview in St George's Hospital in Tudingbeck where the, the project was on cardiovascular immunology which for me was real gutsy save the world stuff and and the interview went very very well and i only got a fraction of the number of um cases i sent out to be called for interview but this particular interview went um really really well and got to the end of the interview where they kind of essentially offered the project and asked me um how long i or my parents had lived or worked in britain and i kind of froze at that point and i said my mother's never been to Britain and and, and neither really has my father and and so I'm very sorry Mr told me have to stop the interview now this project is only available because it's government funded uh, to those um, who uh, are either British uh, citizens or have, have, have their parents have worked for over five years in Britain um, and at that point, there wasn't the European reciprocal arrangement for people moving throughout Europe. So I had to suddenly leave that particular uh, interview room. And then I immediately kind of looked at new scientists in nature to find a, an industry-sponsored uh, PhD studentship where they didn't care if you're from Timbuktu or, or, or Britain. And I ended up in a, uh, being at a, an interview for a hair follicle disorder, alopecia uh, then in St. John's. Dermatological Institute, uh, St. Thomas's Hospital, just across from the House of Parliament. And I remember actually hearing these uh, two um, supervisors. one was a thymus uh, expert, the other was a dermatologist, both exotic birds to me, talking about the hair follicle. And I was only thinking about the immunology. My plan wasn't really to save the world one hair follicle at a time. <laughs> so it it was really kind of a, a very crazy interview where at times I was almost reverse interviewing, the, the panel uh, to try and stir this toward you know immunology uh, yeah. more and more and uh, in the end they they obviously didn't get too upset with that behavior and they offered me the post and then I I obviously um I went to live in in very colourful Brixton and and turned up one day at St Thomas's Hospital only to find pop video uh, being filmed in the front lawn. I think it was Rick Astley and "You're Never Going to Give Me Up" or something, and with the with the with the House of Parliament in the backdrop. And all of that was so super intimidating in terms of you know coming from Navan and um, suddenly into London and this massive hospital and you know, all of the other stuff that was happening on, happening in there in a kind of a hive of activities. So it was a, a very interesting uh, baptism into not just a project, but the whole kind of environment yeah. that a PhD will bring to, to these kind of greenhorn people as I was then.
0: And sorry, just because you'd said earlier, so you were... You were in London already because you were just working there, were you?
1: I was working as a, a friend of mine. Uh, she was a nurse in a, the National Hospital for Nervous Diseases up at Maida Vale. Her name was Barbara Levy, sadly just deceased recently. And she was kind enough to, to get me that job as a front hall porter. So I was just standing, you know, inside the front hall uh, door of that hospital. And uh, I was there for several months. And I thought, well, why not just apply for for, you know, PhDs over here and see if I can get any interviews and then I would be close to turn up for the interviews. Uh, and then I got the, obviously the one in in Saint George's, and then later the one in Saint Thomas's with the with the hair follicle.
0: And so, did you take to kind of that field straight away? Because you know that I and we'll speak about this you know later. But like this mm-hmm. is kind of the area you you are an expert in now.
1: Yeah, no, I didn't really. I mean, to tell the truth, I was mostly embarrassed about the the nature of the project. I was determined to stay in London and I wanted to do a PhD and I wanted it to be as close to immunology as I could get it. And of course, the heart would have been really, really good, but the hair follicle was kind of a bit weird. And I kind of went through, I think, at least the first couple of years, not really kind of owning up to the fact that I was doing a PhD on the hair follicle, because it was almost like, was this going to equip you to become, you know, an an elite barber or hairdresser or or, or, or what? So I kind of, it said it was the skin because i kind of knew that skin was slightly more kind of relevant and then a skin disease you know with all the psychology of that but so i I kind of played down this this hair follicle and of course now i I, i'm i'm kind of slightly besotted by the hair follicle not only as one of only two mammal specific traits that we have the other one being the mammary gland but also the hair follicle having its own vascular system nervous system muscle system a unique immune uh, status and being the only you know structure in the adult body that goes through this kind of cycle of kind of embryogenic recapitulated cycle throughout her entire life you know when your hair falls out and regrows and falls out and regrows and therefore it's a phenomenal biological universe of both cell um, proliferation cell differentiation and cell death through apoptosis and, and that's happening the entire way through your, 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 your life and it's the only tissue in the body outside the female reproductive tract that can undergo this kind of reinvention mm-hmm. uh, involving stem cells so it's turned out to be you know from a real cinderella type of topic um, dermatology is already kind of a cinderella of medicine but the hair follicle was the cinderella of dermatology uh, to now being a much more biologically relevant uh, you know focus of study but when i was doing, starting my phd it was a major yawn to be working in, in the hair follicle, you know.
0: Well, yeah, because when I've been kind of looking up your research in the last while and because I would never, you know, you'd never really consider the hair follicle, I suppose. And and that's why I was really excited yeah. to suppose chat to you, because there is so many fascinating aspects to it. But before I kind of get into the, the nitty gritty oh, of yes, it, yes, yes. you've been in so many different countries. Then the fact that you've now returned and you're you're in UCD. So after yeah. your PhD, you then moved to New York. The
1: PhD went very, very well in the sense that it was a kind of a, a relatively uh, unsaturated field of study. And this is what's... I would, or give us some kind of advice really, uh, to try and find a niche uh, for researchers where it's not so crowded. Uh, So this area was not at all populated. So anything you kind of found that was novel was essentially publishable. So I got to my four papers fairly quickly and therefore I finished my PhD early and before the actual funding uh, was was used up. So I, I spent six months in Utrecht in the Netherlands to do an Erasmus exchange um, where I was not only able to use my PhD stipend, but also get a little bit of extra money from the Erasmus program. So I was kind of really, really fortunate to have be, been able to kind of enjoy life uh, during that six-month period. And then after um, working in Utrecht, getting a couple of papers through there, and that was more immunology again, I kind of then went to do a postdoc at NYU, New York University Medical Center, again on alopecia this time in the lab that included vitiligo, a, p- a depigmenting disorder of the skin, but also the lab leader, Jean Claude Bistrin had a melanoma vaccine program. He was a dermatologist. So even though I didn't work on melanoma at the time, I uh, kind of learned a little bit about what was happening in melanoma, and New York at that particular time was was such a colourful place, somewhat dangerous place, mm-hmm. and you know, for for a single young person, it was a, a, such a a thrilling place. And I stayed there for for, for longer than I predicted. I stayed there for four and a half years, and I moved from postdoc into into assistant research professor status, which kind of helped with the with the kind of CV side of things. And then it was only a chance chat at a conference where academic in Bradford University kind of indicated there was a, a fixed term contract coming up for a lectureship there if I was interested. And I said, oh, no, 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 I'm I'm really, you know, having a fantastic time in New York. But when I went back to the lab, I immediately brushed up the CV. And I, I mm-hmm. kind of knew that to live too long on a postdoc salary in New York would become almost impossible. Uh, so expensive salaries were were quite low then and um, getting an academic job with training for for teaching would then round out the kind of research and teaching element uh, and hopefully get maybe a fully fledged uh, academic at some point.
0: So like how was the move to Bradford and I mean from what I can understand you, you stayed there you were there for quite quite some time was there they, any possibility that you would stay there?
1: Well you know this is kind of interesting this is also kind of taps into you know the personal decisions you you make, you know, and and it's probably less kind of stressy for, for for a guy than for a girl in in terms of where they want to potentially settle down and potentially have a family, and and because obviously postdoc years and early kind of academic years go into your thirties, you know, and you and and you all these kind of other consider considerations to make. I kind of felt. That I would go to New York for two years. So I didn't really set down any kind of roots there. And then when it became four and a half years, I kept that kind of mantra going in my head because I didn't predict it to go four and a half years. And then, of course, when I went to Bradford, for me, Bradford was behind the moon. I'd never heard of it. You know, Manhattan was already kind of just such a major world kind of center, and Dublin, uh, much, much higher even than Bradford, you know. So Bradford was a very odd place for me. To go to, but the reason why I went there was because they had a group of really good, a small group of good uh, skin and hair follicle uh, researchers that was unusual in that they ended up in Bradford. And I w- really went because of them mm-hmm. and to work alongside of them. But again, it was a three year fixed term. I thought I'd be back in Dublin after three years. I remember saying to a colleague immediately after my interview, uh, who was already in Bradford, So, why did you? why did you uh, come from Manhattan to Bradford? And I said, well, it's the closest academic job to Dublin I could get. Yeah. And I really had that in my mind, even though it probably wasn't the most PC thing to say when you were being welcomed into the bosom of a new academic uh, you know, uh, university. But I never thought I'd spend more than three years there. And I ended up spending 22 years. Wow. Um, so I, I kind of went through the academic ranks there. And I should say in small universities where you, you can shine without having too much elbowing, I found it easier to go through the academic ranks and, and I was lucky to go uh, to have a personal chair in cell biology in 2004, uh, when I was still in my 30s, so, so that was still a kind of an, an, an important a- achievement in terms of, of the external validation side. But the internal validation side... I, I almost had a blank canvas there um, in terms of accessing, you know, PhD students, you know, even though we didn't have a medical school, we had access to hospitals to, uh, to get skin tissue. Mm. And if you put in the effort, you know, there was very little uh, kind of influences to drag or to draw or to block or to irritate when you're in some, sometimes smaller universities and less politics so your visibility can become more apparent more quickly than if you were surrounded by loads of of, of people who are desperately trying to become you know uh, researchers with an international reputation so so that's kind of that was the advantage of staying I, there was no kind of pressure building up to say after the 10th year now go or the uh, 12th year now go now go Reiner allowed me to flip back and forth between these Bradford airport and Dublin. I could still maintain connectivity with friends and family. I still didn't want to settle in Britain in terms of family. So I kind of settled really in Ireland in terms of family. And I commuted for eight years. Um, between Dublin and Bradford uh, because they allowed me to work from home for a couple of days per week. Um, so my wife and, and kids then started getting a bit frustrated after a certain number of years. And then I was always looking over the, the kind of hedge, really, to find a p- position in Ireland. But skin research in Ireland wasn't developed at all. And the, the only job there was in Ireland, really, human skin you know re- research, uh, was at um, um, UCD because they had this uh, Charles Institute of Dermatology, which is the, the only dedicated academic center Center for Skin Sciences on the island. Um, So I was looking over the uh, hedge at this particular role, there was somebody already in position, and it was restricted to clinicians, clinician researchers, and of course, I'm not a clinician. Mm. Um, So finally, after a couple of directors in this role that that stayed only for a few years each, uh, or even less in one case, they decided to kind of remove the the restriction on it being a, a clinician, and opened it up to either. And so then I applied and uh, but had I not gotten this job, uh, Megan, I, I I still probably would be in Bradford.
0: God, I mean, yeah. it's kind of like ahead of their time, though, to let you work from home, because obviously now everyone can work yes. from home.
1: That's right. I mean, I think uh, it was probably I'd probably done about maybe 14 years full on. And and I mean, really full on. I mean, I was working like almost like, you know, definitely six days a week. And, and, and so I put in. A significant, amount, even colleagues, even male colleagues of mine who had young families were kind of not not bugged, but 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 kind of um, you know, kind of slightly irritated by by the fact that that, that I was able to put in such long hours uh, because I had no dependents, I had no responsibilities and they had and it was quite right that they weren't putting in those hours but when it comes to kind of cd building you know you only see the scientists in terms of their output you know in terms of their publications and it's quite a cruel lens at, at which uh, individuals are are judged you know ma- you know male or female but particularly female as the choices for when to start a family are, are are more restricted than than it was in my particular case so I was kind of a late dad but I would have been a, a rather selfish Young dad, if you know what I mean, yeah. uh, in terms of what I would have have been able to to give up, you know, at that time. And so all of those kind of, you know, things before all Athena Swan and before, like you say, working from home and greater access... Uh, became available uh, were all kind of hewn in on an individual basis from the environments that one found oneself in.
0: And do you think, you know, having had experiences in so many different, not only I suppose countries, but different systems of funding and and academia, do you think that has stood to you now?
1: Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely you get a chance to see research in in, in different systems. Mm-hmm. NYU was a private university and, and they had a kind of a, the largest dermatology department on the East Coast of the United States. So they had a lot of you know, super kind of potent kind of um, researchers there that kind of showed you really where you could potentially fit in in a jigsaw puzzle of that. And then obviously in Bradford, it was a north of England, uh, kind of a working class city. And uh, it, you know, it was quite different from Manhattan in that sense. And But one of the things I will say in the U.S., academic environment and in the British academic environment, because they're in countries that are very large and there's so many universities, you know, there's far less groupthink in those places than I'm finding in Ireland. And one of the real shocks I've found since returning in 2018 was just how, uh, how do I say this, how, how less diverse people's, at least people's vocalization of thoughts is in Ireland than it was. And so, for example, in Britain, you had the London School, the Manchester School, the Glasgow School, the Southampton School—they all kept each other honest, and none of them could assume the dominant kind of um, hegemony, really, in terms of British dermatology. And and that forced a degree of diversity. And Ireland, I, I, my, and because it's almost like a city state, really, in in Dublin, dominating so much of the country, and your relatively small numbers of universities, you end up getting very. In clonal you know thinking and and that really should never happen in a university that would be my first biggest criticism of the difference between mm-hmm. the countries where even if people have different thoughts they often don't feel comfortable in in speaking okay. them yeah. now so there's an awful lot of sacred cows that have emerged through in Ireland and Irish society over the last few years and uh, it penetrates even into university and I think that's a real super shame because universities should really be the 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 last remaining place where people can say all the Voltairean things, you mm-hmm. know, you know. You may not like what you hear, but you respect the person's right to say it. Type of stuff. Whereas there's a lot of closing down of stuff now in I would describe, you know, modern Ireland. Um, that 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 wasn't the case, you know. You know, the canceling, then the, you know, the, the non-platforming, all that sort of stuff that's come into to universities, and if universities do go down that road in terms of being so moderated by a, a, a very narrow perspective, I think we'll really reduce our creativity as a yeah. as, as as a nation in general, but also as a scientific nation.
0: Yeah, it's it's an interesting point, and you know, it's the first time that that's been brought up in the podcast. So yeah, it, it's it's oh, good to get different.
1: It, because I've been essentially out of Ireland since I was eighteen. <laughs> and I came back into Ireland again, uh, well, in, in you know, my late 40s and then into my 50s. You know, so uh, I've had, you know, almost 30 years of living in cultures as diverse as New York, as London and as the northeast of England and even into the Netherlands. So so I'm kind of cross comparing a lot of my mm. um, observations against that backdrop. Uh, so I guess if I'd never left, I probably wouldn't have that um, that ability, you know.
0: Yeah, but it's good because, you know, if everyone kind of, if everyone stays in the same route and in the same universities, suppose we won't get that exposure. And that. Um... I think
1: it's super important. Yeah, it's super important because, you know, as we know, in biology, clonal anything, uh, the first, you know, the first sign of, a, of, an, of an insult or a disease wipes everything out, you know. Uh, so I think we need not just uh, biological diversity, but we also need thought diversity. And um, I just feel that's, that's definitely diminished, diminished a bit. Well, by contrast to my experience in those other countries where people can come forward to kind of communicate a little bit more freely. I'm talking about students. Mm-hmm. So I was in, in, in a city with a very strong Islamic population, for example. You know, I remember a Pakistani student coming up to me when I was kind of talking a little bit about the evolutionary uh, selective pressures behind biology, and I had a student coming up to me and said, look, I'm not too happy with the way you're describing, describing that. And we got into a very, very just good discussion about, you know, um, you know where you know religion and science is kind of two wings of the same bird it could be accommodated whereas um I'm not sure we would have a student in Dublin coming up and challenging uh, a biology lecturer about about that they'd probably if they felt it would say nothing or or assume that it was already a, a done deal and and just move on you know
0: well, maybe if any of your students are listening to this now, they'll,
1: <laughs> they'll be barraging me.
0: <laughs> um, so I suppose I suppose this is a good point in, in our conversation to bring in your research. And, you know, you kind of touched on it there about, you know, the the kind of fascination that you now hold with with hair follicle biology. So maybe if you want to elaborate on that, but also speak about because I feel like one of the major um, areas you work on is alopecia So maybe discuss what that disease might be look like and then i suppose what your research has has found
1: um so the, the hair follicle i mean the skin obviously is our largest body organ by weight and, and and by surface area and um it's not just a barrier to keep things out and uh you know and stop things um getting in it also is only functional if it has all of these extra things in it like the so-called skin appendages so the hair follicles are in there the sweat glands are in there Uh, you've loads of other kind of touch glands uh, touch sensors pressure sensors mechanical sensors it's highly vascularized it's highly innervated contains all of these different cell types you know like the keratin forming cells the collagen forming cells the pigment forming cells and you've got these weird structures like nails and, and hairs and for other animals you know claws and beaks and, and all these other appendages so the the the, the fascinating the fascinating thing about skin is that you have a kind of a crosstalk between different histological tissues uh, principally epithelial tissues and mesenchymal tissues uh, in order to generate these multi mixed cellular uh, systems, and I would call the follicle like a mini organ in that sense. So you would have keratinocytes, melanocytes, fibroblasts, Schwann cells uh, in the follicle. Uh, you would have blood vessels going around it, endothelial cells. You've got mast cells. You've got all the immune cells. Um, so you've got this real phenomenal biological universe or test tube. Uh, to start you know, looking for, for communication between cells. And one of my areas of interest for communication for hair growth is in between mesenchymal cells and epithelial cells, particularly epithelial stem cells, and how you program those epithelial stem cells to embark on, on kind of uh, stereotypic pathways to create particular tissues in the end of this rather remarkable hair fiber that for some people can grow a meter long. That's totally kind of odd in humans, our nearest chimpanzee cousins um, essentially have no luxurious hair growth on their scalp. Humans are odd and it's very important in, in communication, of course, um, the hair that we have on the scalp, the eyebrows, the eyelashes, uh, the beard for, for for humans. So there's an awful lot invested into human evolution around, you know, mammal evolution around the hair follicle. But we now also know that the hair follicle is a kind of a a reservoir of regenerative potential. So uh, the best areas for wound healing in our bodies are the areas that have hairs. Uh, So for example, surgeons have known if they had an incisional wound on the male arm on the top, it would heal much better than the undersurface. uh, Because of the wound healing capacity that's already invested in the follicle, that's just waiting to be used in the in the wounded environment. So all of that kind of brings in tissue regeneration, uh, bio, uh, tissue engineering, all of those capacities around the follicle. And then, of course, the other striking thing, particularly in Northwest Europe and the Irish uh, uh, Celtic phenotype, is the remarkable color variations we have with our skin and eyes and hair, um, showing the importance of the melanocytes in adapting, you know, to life under and under the sun, albeit not so much up here, but, uh, and that really reflects why we've lost our, our, our deeply tanned skin, our black skin, and, and sometimes our dark eye phenotype and black hair phenotype, although eye and hair aren't really as linked to the sun as our skin would be. And we start to see this incredible palette of colors in the Northwest European context of green eyes, blue eyes, gray eyes, brown eyes, black eyes, you know, blonde hair, red hair, you know, uh, brown hair, uh, black hair, Um, and then obviously all the different types of skin from tannable skin, olive skin, freckled skin. So the whole pigmentation palette uh, is super exciting for understanding the genes that underpin it. Uh, and, And then also what goes wrong, you know, Why, uh, you know, is melanoma such a problem in individuals with pale skin, particularly Celtic skin? Uh, What causes a melanocyte to go bad? You know, um, and recent research now, including some SFI funded research in my group, is looking at leverage it in the follicle, where you have all the life stages of a melanocyte from stem cell to proliferating melanocyte to differentiating melanocyte to dying melanocyte, and to see if we could leverage that to understand or find an Achilles heel uh, in order to either kill a melanoma cell, force it to apoptose, and they're terribly hard to apoptose, or try to find out why it's it's, it's going from um, a non-proliferative state to a proliferative state. Because typically in the skin, The melanocytes don't divide, but the ones in the follicle do. But paradoxically, the melanocytes in the follicle don't become melanoma. The melanocytes in the epidermis become melanoma. And all the focus has been through most or nearly all of melanoma research on the status of the melanocyte in the epidermis. Whereas now for the first time in our lab, we're trying to see, well, what's turning on and off these melanocytes. In the context of the follicle and can we you know subvert some of that learning to try and then uh, impact on the situation in in melanoma and you know i wasn't working on melanoma until really uh, you know uh, this year and actually my brother in palatobine uh, got melanoma diagnosed just in july of this year so this is the very first time in my entire career where my research has now got a personal drive mm. so it's kind of a a remarkable journey in a, in, in, that you can have in this kind of scientific kind of uh, career.
0: And you work on human yes. skin yeah. tissue. So do you isolate the melanocytes from that or how does that process work? Yes,
1: yes. I should definitely uh, say that my focus is on human skin science. I did a little bit of, of mouse-based work at the very early stage of my career, but there's a great difficulty in extrapolating murine data to, to human data, especially in skin. Uh, The mouse, by the way, is a nocturnal animal. Uh, It's not out when the sun is shining. It's it's, it's covered with a fur coat, and all its pigment cells uh, are in the follicles. uh, None are in the epidermis, even though it's the preferred model for human skin melanocyte behavior. I mean, you couldn't have more oddity in terms of finding uh, a model. They just like it because of the elegant genetics for identifying individual genes, and there, of course, are homologues in human pigmentation and, and, and skin as well. But I, I, I would not, at least in skin, be a big fan of the um, dominance, and the dominance in funding, I should say also, that go into, into the mouse model. Indeed, many times I've submitted a paper and reviewers have come back and said, ah, oh, but can you, can you make a mouse model of that? <laughs> and I'm thinking, but the mouse has nothing to do with the sunshine. It, 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 it's not up when the sun is shining. Why would I create a model and yeah. force awkward genetics, reverse genetics back into a, into a mouse skin that doesn't have the cell to begin with? So this whole area of, of the models and now the melanoma patient groups are really getting more active in this area. They're thinking, look at all of this cell line work, all of this mouse work, You know, we're, we're not moving the dial significantly in melanoma. Mm. Most of what we're finding in melanoma is accidental and serendipity. know what do we need to do there so that's a long way of saying yes i work on 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 human skin we get skin from plastic surgery clinics and i'm very grateful for a little bit of vanity there where people want to go for tummy tucks or facelifts because we get the skin into the lab so we isolate the individual cell components or indeed now increasingly try to use the entire piece of skin in in a form of histoculture
0: Mm.
1: As three-dimensional arrangement of cells is super important and this two-dimensional way of of growing cells in on plastic is likely to generate a lot of data. But whether you really can be comfortable with that data in terms of its likely in situ uh, relevance is not at all clear.
0: And sorry, because I you know because you mentioned your brother, how is he? is he is he doing well?
1: Yes, he's doing he's doing well. I mean, I mean, ac- actually it was a, a lockdown story, a bit like your 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 story, Megan, in terms of this podcast. We hadn't visited each other's family for for you know for quite a while you know probably once every several months so uh we finally i think when one of the lockdowns opened i was over at his house and he was down tying his his shoe uh and shoelace and i saw on the top of his head a lesion that i wasn't really happy with and and i said you know heather can i take a photograph of that so i took a photograph on my phone i showed him it and um, e- even though he's a politician and he's not a farmer, he's uh, has uh, hens at the back of his, of his garden. And he was constantly kind of abrading his balding sc- scalp with chicken wire and other things as he was going in and out of the coop. And so he was getting a few kind of cuts and he never really noticed it being any different than that. But anyway, he showed the picture to his doctor. His doctor had him in the following day. He showed him that same Sunday that the picture to his doctor, the doctor got back and said, come in to me the following day. He took a biopsy the following day. It was sent to Blanchestown and then up to uh, St. James's, it, it, you know, he had a diagnosis of a, uh, a mid-sized melanoma, uh, you know, at that point. And he then went through rapid um, further kind of uh, biopsying and and. And, and, and you know, trying to remove the, the tissue and then see whether they removed at all. And then of course, he had needed a graft from his thigh to replace the skin that they'd removed from the top of the head. Uh, it's a little bit back off the, off the front. So it's not as visible to, as you see on, on, on the front of his face. Uh, and, and then he obviously then went through all the scans and everything else. And so far, you know, they're clear and he's, he hopes to be uh, fortunate in that area. I've been, uh, you know, trying to leverage his his uh, association with melanoma now through the Irish Skin Foundation you know to try and and to raise the profile of of sun damage on skin and cancer and and the more severe skin cancer melanoma you know through kind of anything he can kind of lobby on behalf of of skin cancer which is a huge problem in Ireland mm. so hopefully there will be you know some good coming out of his his new reality there and with my connection here back into UCD uh, Charles Dermatology to try and improve the status of both research and patient care uh, for melanoma in Ireland.
0: Brilliant and delighted that he's you know doing well and, and that it was you know that he was fortunate enough that you had seen had spotted it on his head but it, kind of what strikes me about d- dermatology research and, and your research as well in particular is the range of areas and disease areas that you can Research, you know, I mentioned a few at the start. You've got um alopecia vitiligo, melanoma, psoriasis. I know you work on HS as well, and um, yes. I suppose it makes your lab quite diverse. Then,
1: absolutely. So, because the skin is so accessible, Megan, as a tissue, uh, you can you can you can work on it quite easily. Off cuts from surgery that would otherwise be incinerated. So it's actually relatively easy in terms of ethically easy to access the tissue by contrast say to the liver or the kidney or or the lung whatever so so as a kind of organ it's highly accessible and there's so many disorders affecting the skin whether they affect the hair follicle the pigmentation system you know the the barrier like in atopic dermatitis or in psoriasis and you know, they often have common paradigms that they share. These these different skin uh, disorders, be it an inflammatory environment, you know, be it an autoimmune uh, recognition of of a, of a self antigen, a lot of the similar uh, laboratory devices and tricks and and, and reagents can can be diverted across and one you know one disease can give you an insight into another disease as we're finding so hs uh, often starts around a hair follicle but it's 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 a, a terribly uh, inflammatory scarring type of hair follicle disorder um so when you lose where the hair follicle is de- is, is destroyed it's it's gone Whereas is alopecia areata it's a spontaneously relapsing remitting disorder where the stem compartment of the follicle is not destroyed and the follicle can recover and live another day and uh, so all of these different um, conditions have kind of partially or or you know or overlapping paradigms in terms of their biological and underpinnings and you can therefore you know, move knowledge from one to inform another, you know, quite easily.
0: And I've read that, you know, with alopecia as well, you've kind of found this um, autoimmune component. With that discovery, with that knowledge, could there be a potential for treatments there, you know, for people who do suffer with alopecia?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a very good question because, you know, we're we're at a time where there are several treatments out there, typically clustered around something called biologics treatments. So they're antibody-based treatments, and they're commonly there to immunosuppress the individual or to, to suppress the particular population of immune cells that are implicated uh, in a condition, uh, and, and increasingly we're finding the same biologics being repurposed and repackaged by pharmaceutical companies for other for other disorders. Now that's all well and good from the perspective of the pharmaceutical companies can sell more drug. The patient, all they're fundamentally interested in is something that will will make them better. They're not as bothered about the nuances of what's causing their condition. And if these condi- if these treatments are, 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 are really quite successful, you almost get to a kind of a perverse situation where, okay, we've cured it. Now we don't really need to be bothered by what causes it anymore. That's a kind of an academic curiosity that you guys can do in your, in your over your weekends, if you want. But now the patient <laughs> is getting the benefit and the drug is already out there. So you've got that kind of almost perversity happening in certain areas of skin disease on one level but the the other thing around the immune system in general is fascinating in terms of you know trying to keep your immune system as bolstered as possible to be able to fight infections Uh, and one of the concerns around this covid time where we're all kind of surround wrapping ourselves is that the normal exchange of bugs between individuals is not happening anymore and uh, pharmacies are are mentioning that the sale of antibiotics has plummeted because people aren't coming in with their normal you know winter bugs in the same level and to some degree That's not good because you want cross-fertilization of uh, interfacing with the environment for for kids. And and we know the hygiene hypothesis for atopic dermatitis that we're living in these sterile, clean environments. People who are raised in farms, more lower incidence of atopic dermatitis. So we have to be very careful in managing how we uh, look at skin disease by you know, not debt everything within an inch of its life. Mm -hmm. And therefore, you know, the classic case of the kids, ice cream falling on, on the floor and mother swoops in with Dettol to put it in the bin and to clean everything with Dettol. When I was a kid, we picked it back up and ate it, you know? And, um, so I'm a bit conscious about, you know, the immune system being potentially weakened by our environment here. And then on a, on a kind of a, a intellectual scientific sense, everybody wants to call immune mediated diseases, autoimmune, you know, there's a sexiness around saying your your disease is autoimmune, rather boring, immune mediated. And areata is currently immune mediated. We have never found a, a really clear autoantigen yet, which is the defining okay. characteristic, I think, of the definition autoimmunity, although by and large, everybody refers to it as a, an autoimmune disease.
0: Yeah, because there's a lot of crossover there with kind of, you know, the rheumatoid arthritis research and, you know, we would work on fibroblast cells, for example, which are I'm sure you you do as well. And psoriatic arthritis and psoriasis, There there is quite a crossover. And even what you, you're talking about, kind of having the multicellular component and biopsy work, which I think is so important because you know, cells don't just float around by themselves. You know, they're they're communicating and talking with other cells all the time. And I think the modeling of that is really important to get right.
1: Yeah, I totally, totally agree with you. And I think if that's the kind of take home message from the entire podcast, I would say that's it. Because I think a huge amount of literature in scientific literature is filled with data that are coming from experimental designs that don't have that at their core. And for that reason, I would say a huge amount of the scientific literature is probably going to be a very limited uh, value really, despite the high impact factor of the journals and the careers that they would have made along the way. Um, Because you're absolutely right, once you take one cell outside of the context, I mean, even just growing fibroblasts, you use that example, typically fibroblasts are grown in culture that contains fetal calf serum. Fibroblasts are awash with serum proteins. They would only usually see serum proteins in the wild ie in 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 human skin (laughs) during wound healing where you break open blood vessels you spill out all these serum proteins into into the um, dermis and you get this hyperplastic reaction in the in the fibroblasts they divide like crazy because they're kind of drunk on all of these serum proteins we are creating in in the lab fibroblasts to be permanently drunk on serum uh, whiskey yeah and then hoping that they're going to give us some normal kind of uh, data. And the worst thing even still is that we grow all of these skin cells in 20, 21% oxygen. When in the skin, they're two, three, 4% oxygen. So they're hyperoxic and drunken whiskey. And that's our baseline for our study. There's gotta be something wrong with that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, but um, well, yeah. sorry, no, I was just gonna say, you know, uh, kind of switching back a little bit. Uh, you know, you spoke earlier about, I suppose, how hair and and skin and everything that's it's so external and so yeah. personal to our even our, our self confidence, our vanity, that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I, I want to just ask some fun questions. I suppose, yeah. like, is there a genetic basis, or is there a kind of a um a genetic predisposition for people who go grey early, or people who go bald, or you know, because I I know in, in men. And particularly early baldness can be quite challenging and, and quite upsetting, I suppose.
1: Yes. No. You're absolutely right. I mean, there is. Um, I mean, most of these conditions are polygenic, so there isn't really a an easy way to, un- to unpick the genetics. But essentially, if you if, if you're a kind of a teenage guy and you want to get a sense of whether you're going to bald, you look at your father's sc- scalp and your uncles on your father's side and your 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 uncles uh, and grandparents on your mother's side. So you will have a sh- a, sh- a shuffling of the deck, really, and and it's not really clear where most of the important genes are uh, are they on the y chromosome or not you know so it looks like they're, they're, there's a lot on the x chromosome but obviously be, you need both the genetic predisposition and the circulating hormone to have that so if you if, if for example the classic studies wouldn't get ethics for it anymore where you castrate someone prior to puberty they won't get bald even if they have a strong genetic predisposition But if you castrate the individual and remove their testosterone after, you know, uh, uh, starting to go bald, they will not recover their their hair growth. Um, So there is a lot of, and we know on the scalp that you have hair follicles around the sides that are somewhat able to uh, ignore the (laughs) um, the testosterone, whereas the hair on the top, you know, is is hit very quickly. So so there's even on the the same scalp, you have variation. And and a balding guy can have a very strong beard and a strong hairy chest. um, Whereas a guy who looks like he has no hair at all and his beard or his chest can have kind of flowing locks. So there's a lot of paradoxes as to why hair will grow on this site and won't grow on that site, you know, between different individuals. And then the grain, I was lucky enough to be involved in a genetic admixture study in South America across five countries with different European, African and East Asian genetic ancestries to unpick some of the genes that were now associated with loads of things like hair growth, monobrow, beard density, but even early graying. We got one particular gene hit that was associated with with graying in, in, in the 20s and early 30s called IRF4. So so, so there is a, um, a genetic underpinning. I, w- I should say another criticism I would have is the Eurocentric focus on dermatology research where we've spent all our time looking at what's happening in the context of European skin and European hair, uh, European pigmentation, when the greatest diversity, genetic diversity, is in Africa. And this kind of eurocentricity of dermatological research has also caused us to miss a lot of very, very powerful biologies that were driving the kind of diversification of the human family Um, you know, from the beginning and and having this kind of uh, South American population across five countries. The cohort is called Candela cohort, if those are interested in looking it up. And you can see, you know, recent Spanish Iberian Peninsula gene injections into South Americans or African slave trade injections, say say into Brazil or um, East Asian kind of, um, Far East Asian genes that have come in there as well, like Amerindian genes. And you can start to kind of get a real good sense of the genetic underpinnings of a lot of how we look.
0: Yeah, it's so it's so interesting. And I I know I'm kind of fascinated by this whole area now from, you know, my previous research of you and then this podcast. So I suppose, Des, you know, looking back on your kind of career to date and your experience in academia, what do you find the most frustrating aspect? We'll start off with the negative first. And then what do you find, I suppose, what what gets you up in the morning? What drives this passion for, for what you do?
1: so what gets me up in in the morning is, is is a good dollop of curiosity i've never worked outside of the educational environment so i quite like this feeling of being self-employed and still having your salary guaranteed so the, the academic freedom of that mm-hmm. is also hugely interesting so that the curiosity for the subject the kind of environment that you work in in terms of the freedom it it gives the cultural diversity of colleagues and students and you share a common passion in in science but you but they all have their different flavors in terms of their their backgrounds it forces you away from 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 narrow uh, kind of linear thought processes you know and some of these are ancient societies from china from india and all the rest of it and it force it forces the awareness that you're not just inventing you know human modern life uh, you know in, in the last 10 15 years you know so in, in terms of what's trendy in, th- in terms of our group think thought processes so that's hugely fascinating obviously there's an ego bit in there you like to have your ego massage when you get publications or you have uh you know, weekly little mini discoveries. Some of them, of course, are false alarms, but still they're, they're very exciting even before they turn out to be false alarms. So that kind of range of diversity, I think, is super, super interesting. The challenges in modern science is often around, you know, a publication and grant award. You know, I mean, I won't bore you uh, in in some of the frustrations I've had when I've read reviewers' comments and I thought, well, what paper have they actually been, Sent, you know, you know, they're completely misread it. You could argue that it wasn't written in 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 a clear way, perhaps. But either they were trying to get through this uh, too fast because we're all kind of super ch- uh, chock a block with all these requests to review papers. So I think the review, the academic peer review system, is on its knees. I think that's a hugely problematic area. I, I can't really offer a clear answer to that, but definitely. We can't continue what we're doing, uh, and then on the grant side of things, you know, it, it's amazing when you start to look at uh, uh, when you compare some labs that are funded I think enormous millions and millions and millions, and and often and rather kind of technology driven uh, driven things, particularly the omics area. You know, if if you could do something, then you should be funded to do it, rather than well, what question are you being asked? Mm-hmm. you know with that highfalutin uh, technique and you know that we we're living now of course through the whole kind of single cell RNA-seq side but in the same way as we commented on taking cells out on their own and growing them separately in culture like a fibroblast on its own we also have to look carefully at you know the time it takes to get the single cell out of its tissue and then before you get it into a, a, any kind of sequencing uh, context, context and, and 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 the quite likelihood of drift happening in those cells or in at least in the subpopulation viability uh, that you have at the end of the day. So you're skewing and skewing and skewing. And just because it's a new fandangle thing, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's where all the the funding for research should go. Uh, I'm very conscious that very little observation, good old fashioned observation research is getting funded. They'll immediately come back and say, oh, we want the mechanism. You know, mm-hmm. what's the mechanism? And they say, okay, I'll, 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 I'll develop for you a completely, you know, um, wacky mouse model that will never exist on planet Earth. That will show you the mechanism of that protein, and then you'll give me the money. You know, yeah. I mean, so so um, a lot of Pasteur and, and Fleming and all of these guys would have it, would have found it very hard to get funded if their observations weren't of interest, but only the you know the uh, der- reductionist derivation of it. Uh, mm-hmm. Became fundable, so that's my other other frustration at the moment.
0: Just hearing you talk about single cell RNA seq, you know, I'm just finding that it's like the trend at the minute. So everyone, yeah. you, you go any presentation, at, you know, it's like. And then we did single cell RNA seq. Yeah. I mean, I'm
1: <laughs> going to do it myself. So, so, so are my... we?
0: Yeah, yeah. like yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm 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 I suppose criticizing my our ourselves as yeah. well as everyone else. Yeah. But I, I sometimes find you know. I think there needs to be maybe a, it needs to be backed up a little bit because everyone just seems to be like, oh, then we found these you know 11 clusters and then uh, yeah. you go to the next meeting and it's like, well actually we found 24 clusters because we did yeah. some more things than already
1: and I'm like, what does that you mean believe, I know no exactly it's a, it's a fundamental question what does it mean uh, that often is, is kind of pushed really to to the edge. Of course as scientists we're just as as susceptible there's kind of a Kardashian of uh, uh, trend in science. There's, a, you know, there you know, people want to be in a kind of hot area. They want to be there at what they call a vanguard in terms of technical sophistication. You know, there's all of this sort of mesmerization aspect. You know that people, you know, get you know seduced by and succumb to. And so, I mean, you, and some people are so far. In that um, uh, kind of zone now, that they dare not move out of it because mm-hmm. they just got to add another uh, technique and another technique and another technique. And, and uh, you know, we have this issue in melanoma with, with cell lines all the time. You know, they'll choose, you know, a cell line that has a BRAF mutation or NRAS mutation, and then they do all their research on that. And I kind of ask the question what else is going on in that cell outside of the BRAF mutation? Do they have any other kind of mutational kind of diversity that are causing, you know, the biological response modification of that cell? Um, what else is there except that if you put a, an elephant in the room, but you have, you know, half of African ele- uh, animals also in the room, is the elephant the only thing to be looking at? You know, <laughs> so, so these kind of cell line, uh, kind of mutant cell lines are often a little bit worrisome to me in terms of asking that, this question, what does it mean in situ? What does it mean in vivo? Yeah. What does it mean in personalized medicine where two melanomas won't be the same even in the same person, you know?
0: Yeah, no, I, I think we're we're on the same page with a lot of that. But I suppose, as kind of one of my last questions I tend to ask people is, if you weren't a scientist, if you weren't in the career you're in now, how do you think your life would have ended up or, you know, what do you think you might be doing right now? Which is a kind of a hard question.
1: It's a very hard question because, you know, I've never had a real job as such. I've just gone from from kindergarten the whole way through to UCD here and I've never actually been outside part of summer jobs you know so that's quite tricky I mean I I, I had an interest in art when I was when when I was uh, at, at college and I did a little bit of drawing uh, including uh, you know some portrait pictures of my parents for their 25th wedding anniversary that still have been tolerated and, and are still hanging up on on my mother's um, front room um, <laughs> and I didn't really have any formal training for that so I think I, I would have loved to have had the kind of freedom and and, and the kind of wildness of of risk taking to kind of throw myself into something artistic, but knowing how difficult it would have been to kind of pay the bills from that kind of environment. So, so that would have been on on the only thing that I think I could have had a feedback passion loop with. Um, I never, I wasn't really interested in business. My father was in business and I just thought, gosh, there's a lot of, you know, you know, hassles with business and you, you exchange with uh, people who can or can't pay you, you know, all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, So I wanted my salary paid for. I wanted a job where my salary was paid for, but I wanted the freedom to have a little bit like an artistic style of discovery, and uh, biomedical sciences has 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 been that.
0: Well, I mean, I think that's a lovely note to end our podcast on. And honestly, thank you so much for for coming on and chatting to me. And uh, you know, I think Danny Johnson would be very happy because he kind of put this this uh, yes. together. So thanks, Shout to Danny. Out for Danny for, who, yeah, who, for a great suggestion. <laughs>
1: yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for for coming on.
1: Thank you very much, Megan, and thank you for having me. And thank you very much for doing this. And good luck with all the other uh, podcasts along the way.
0: So that's it for another week of Unraveling Science. A big thanks again to our sponsor, Biosciences, who are now part of Thermo Fisher Scientific. And if you like this episode, please rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. See you next Tuesday.